This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. This morning, Pastor Chris is continuing the Lent message series, Rooted Idols. In this series, we're exploring the many things that compete for the throne of our lives. Thanks again for spending part of your week here with us at Christian Chapel. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I don't know about you. I love Palm Sunday um, for a couple reasons, and uh, one of them, it was disappointing it didn't occur this morning. I love the train wreck of Palm Sunday. When, because uh, I hear I hear some of you moms giving your kid the lecture about when you walk in there with that palm branch, you wave it nicely, you be polite, you smile, don't do any. And and I would just, as a pastor of the church, I feel like I have a certain amount of authority that I really don't, but I feel like I do sometimes. And uh, moms, I would just like to ask you, please stop giving that lecture. The rest of us are looking for your kids to have sword fights with the palm branches, to dance a little bit. You know, some of the other moms are like, no, we're not. No, okay. Everyone that's not a mom is looking for that. And it's, you know, it's just really, uh, you know, Easter and Palm Sunday, those weren't nice, clean events. They were kind of chaotic. And we want to present an accurate reflection of the scriptures to ourselves as we worship. So uh, if you could do that for us in the future, that's, that's great as well. Um, today is the final Sunday of Lent, which means that next Sunday is Easter. In your seat this morning when you came in, you saw those little invitation cards. We hope you'll bring someone with you. I did want to encourage you, though, before Easter Sunday, one of the things that we do at Christian Chapel is a Good Friday service. If you've never participated in that with us, uh, I'd really encourage you to come out at 6.30 this Friday. It's a a very meaningful uh, one-hour communion service where we reflect on the significance of the the sacrificial death of Christ and what that means for us. I know many of you came out uh, for the first time this year to our Ash Wednesday service and, and really found deep meaning in that. I think you'll find the same on Good Friday as well. On Sundays during Lent, we've been exploring the ways we're tempted to worship all the gifts of God instead of God as the giver. And when we started this several weeks ago, we uh, kind of laid the the groundwork with this idea that only Jesus can bear the weight of our worship. And so if you remember, we use this example of the the weights that are here behind me and talking about that, you know, the heavier something is, the more important it is to have a solid base underneath you. And in life, the only thing that can support the weight of our worship is Jesus. And any time we place that on something else, no matter how good or lovely or wonderful that thing is, it's ultimately going to crumble under the weight of our worship, the weight of our expectation. It's going to lead us down a road of disappointment, of disillusionment, of just, uh, you know, some really difficult seasons. And so this morning we are kind of wrapping up this series by talking about what happens when we take the gift of family and we turn it into a God that we worship. And we're going to look at kind of how that twists it into something, uh, something that was supposed to be beautiful and life-giving because becomes something very ugly and destructive. But before we do that, I think it's important for us to understand uh, marriage and kids are unequivocal gifts from the Lord. Right? The scriptures are abundantly clear. Marriage is God's idea. He's the one that designed it. He's the one that introduced it to us. He intends for us to participate in it. You know, from the, the creation story, we told, we're told for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And all through the scriptures, there's an elevation of marriage above almost every other human relationship. And it talks about how a husband and wife are to be devoted to one another 
only, completely, that they are to love one another, they're to serve one another, they're to encourage one another. It's the marriage is the picture that the scriptures go to time and again to teach us about our relationship with God and the, the exclusivity of that relationship. So, it, I mean, the, the scriptures are, are clearly pro-marriage and, and they're equally pro-children. You know, it's, it's clear to us again from the creation story that God brings a man and a woman together in marriage and one of the reasons he does that is so that they will produce children. Right? And then all through the scriptures, it talks about children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is the person whose house is full of them. It, it talks about the responsibilities that parents have to nurture their children, to provide for their children, to educate their children, to teach their children all that they know about God. I mean, just again and again and again, the scriptures lift up the value of marriage and family as kind of the preeminent relationships that we have in life and, and talk to us about the responsibility that goes with that. But as with all things, it's often God's greatest gifts to us that contain the greatest potential for idol worship, where we take something that he gave us that is beautiful and lovely and life-giving, and when we put our worship on it, we turn it into something ugly and destructive. And so what we're going to look at this morning is what happens when we worship our family, either through our marriage or through our kids. But uh, I think the, the things we're going to talk about this morning, because you might be here and you're, you're single, you're no kids, and you just think, great, I, you know, finally a free Sunday. I don't, none of this applies. But I, I think the principles we're talking about here are universal. And so they're going to they're gonna apply to any of your relationships that you have. Any relationship that God has given to you, this gift from him, the, the things we'll talk about, I think, will apply there very well. So what we're going to do, if you have your Bible, we're going to look at Luke chapter 14, where Jesus talks about the cost of following him. And, and in this passage, he really gives us a command, and then he tells us two stories to kind of illustrate what he's talking about. So Luke chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 25. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus, his command is I'm first. Right, that's, that's what, he's got this large crowd of people gathered around him. They've been following him. He's performing miracles. He's t teaching in a way they've never heard. He has authority that they've never seen. And the thing that he wants them to know above all else is, look, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. There is no room for any other God next to me. It's basically a New Testament reiteration of God's first command that you will have no other gods before me. Jesus is making it clear to us he is an all-or-nothing Savior, right? He comes to us and he says, look, if you want to follow me, you have to hate everything else. Now, we know he's not literally saying you need to hate, you need to despise your family, your husband, your wife, your children. I mean, you can see in Jesus' interaction with his own family and his instructions about the family that he values it, that he loves it, that he loved his own family, he cared for them. But he's using uh, this, this really extreme language here to drive home this point to us of there's nothing that can be next to him, there's nothing that can be above him. Of if we're going to follow Jesus, we follow him first, 
And then everything else falls into place after that. And so he uses this really strong language to kind of grab the attention of, hey, unless you hate your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, your children, you cannot follow me. And, and we hear that and think, okay, we, we get what he means. But for, for his audience on that day, it had a whole different level of meaning. For the Jewish people who were following him, Jesus was basically telling them, if you choose to follow me, here's what's going to happen. Many of you, you're going to be disowned by your parents. Some of you, you might be abandoned by your spouse. Many of you might experience the, the shame that your children feel about your decision. You very well might wind up being completely alone, and he's presenting them with this very stark choice of, but if you love me first, if you are my disciple, you're going to follow me no matter what. Now, there are still parts of the world today where that decision to follow Jesus carries that same kind of weight. It generally doesn't happen for us in the part of the world that we live in, but still, the principle applies to us. When we choose Jesus, we're choosing him first, and we're choosing him no matter what the cost is. And that's what he then goes on to say. He says, look, if you're going to make this decision, you need to really think about what you're doing. Don't just kind of flippantly decide to follow me, but he says, count the cost. In verse 28, he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. You see, when we make a commitment to follow Jesus, especially when we're thinking of our family, we need to consider what it's going to cost our family for me to follow Jesus. Jesus is basically telling us, look, when you walk into this new way of life where I am your Savior, I'm your Lord, I'm your King, you need to do it with your eyes wide open. You need to consider the cost of what it's going to be to follow me because he, he, the thing he doesn't want is us to get halfway down the road and decide, man, this isn't for me. Don't follow me for 20 years and then you have kids and decide, man, it's just, it's too much. I'm going to walk away from it. So he says, from the beginning, before you even get started, sit down and count the cost. So what this means for us is it means in our marriage, we are counting the cost of following Jesus. And it means that we're having conversations with our spouse. Or if you're dating, you're engaged, you're having conversations with that person about, look, I love you dearly, but you will never be number one. And I hope I'm never number one for you. You know, where, where you're restructuring your marriage to say Jesus is always first for both of us. Right? We, anytime I do a wedding, I try to reflect this. Right before they say their vows to each other, I remind them the vows you're about to give and to receive are second only to your vow to serve Christ as your Lord and Savior. That that always remains preeminent. And so there can be a real cost to that. You know, the, the second thing I think we have to think about is, is if you're a parent of children, this changes the way you parent. It changes some of the, the, the decisions that you make. It means saying no to some of the kind of child-centric insanity of our culture. It means there are going to be times where you have talks with your kids about this is why you can't do that. This is why we don't do those things. This is why we're not paying for that. This is why we're not buying that. It means there might be a real cost where people at some point are coming to you and saying, don't you love your children? Why aren't you giving them this opportunity? Why would you deny them this? And, and the reason you're doing it in whatever area that is is because we've made a decision as a family to put Jesus first. 
And everything has to fall under that. And everything has to be built on top of that. And if we can't take these activities and these things and all the stuff that our culture tells us our kids have to do, if that doesn't fit within the confines of being a follower of Christ, we will not do it. And there's a cost to that at times. People will tell you you don't love your children. They'll tell you you're old-fashioned. They might tell you all sorts of things. And that's exactly the point Jesus is getting to right here. Hey, you need to really think about following me. You need to count the cost. You need to consider it. You're not just going to do this accidentally. There's no such thing as an accidental follower of Jesus. Right? We are, we are by nature sinners. We are by nature choosing what benefits us and what, what we enjoy. And so if we're going to build our life on Christ, we have to be intentional. And that's what Jesus is saying is, look, come in with your eyes wide open. Know what you're getting into and then make a decision that that's what you're going to do. Don't get halfway down the road and then decide you're done, you're finished, you're going to go somewhere else. Then he finishes by telling us, he says, look, you've got to love me first. You've got to count the cost of making me first. And then he he concludes his teaching by kind of giving us two options. Saying basically, here's what's going to happen if you follow me. Here's what's going to happen if you don't follow me. Verse 31, it says, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, at first glance, that uh, to me was always just another example of count the cost. You know, it's just Jesus saying the same thing in a different way. But I think what's actually, the, the point he's really getting at here is, look, when you read this story, it's not just kind of a, an out there, oh, this is an idea like building a tower, just, you know, make sure you know what you're doing. But I think a, a better reading of this illustration he gives us is, God's the king with the big army, you're the king with the little army. And anytime you decide, I can do it my way, you're a fool who's going to be defeated. Your way will never be better than God's way. And so when this comes to marriage and when this comes to family, it means you might have the purest intentions in the world. Your child might actually grow up to be the next president of the United States. You know, your wife, your husband, if you elevate them, they might push farther and faster and be a bigger star than you ever could have imagined. But what Jesus is telling us is, if you will not give up everything to follow me, you cannot be my disciple, and you will ultimately be defeated. And it's, it's not a harsh thing. It's not a, a threatening statement. It's not a follow me or I'm going to get you. It's just a statement of reality that God's the creator of all things. He has a purpose and a plan for your life, for your marriage, for your family. And if you choose to go in a different direction because you think you're smarter than him, it's not going to end well for you. Even if you achieve your goals in the short term, in the long term, there will be no lasting fruit. And so he says, look, consider the outcome. You are overmatched. You're overwhelmed. And so in the situation of the two kings, what happens is the king with the lesser army goes and says, can we, can we have peace? Can we arrange for terms of peace? And what the scriptures teach us is this is how we align our lives with Christ. We put him first by completely surrendering to him. Because when we come to God asking for terms of peace, his answer is Jesus. 
His answer is, it's all been provided. Surrender, give it up, lay it down, follow him, and then you will have life, and you'll have life to the full. And you'll begin to see what it really looks like to then love your spouse, to love your children, to appreciate family as the gift that it is, and not distort it with your worship. But even though we know all that, I think there, you know, there's still just this natural pull, this natural tendency to begin to turn inwards towards our marriage, to turn inwards towards important relationships, to turn inwards towards our children, to begin to find our identity and our worth and our satisfaction and our fulfillment in life in those people that God has given to us. In his book, God's at War, that we're using on, on Wednesdays during Lent for a study, the, the author um, is a guy named Kyle Eidelman, which Greg pointed out to me last week. I, I don't know how I missed it, but a guy writing about idols whose last name is Eidelman is, is, you know, that's just a nice, like, I don't know what his follow-up book is, but I hope it has idol in the subtitle. Um, but uh, in the book, he lays out five things that happen when we worship our family instead of worshiping God. And, and I want to finish this morning by kind of exploring some of those because as I read through those, and especially re- reading through them in light of this passage in Luke 14, it, I think it really brings a lot of clarity to a lot of issues that we see in marriages and family. And it really does come down to this idea of most of the problems we have in our family are because we are worshiping something other than Jesus might not necessarily be that person. It might be an ideal. It might be the approval of someone else. It, you know, but, but all of it, at the end of the day, is we have not counted the cost of following him. We have not surrendered everything to him. We have not considered the outcome that until I surrender to Jesus, defeat is certain. And when we go down any path but the one God has laid out for us, it leads us into some of these experiences. So the, the first way that you damage your family when you worship them is you damage them with unrealistic pressure. When Jesus isn't first, this is what happens. I mean, you might, you might enjoy the thought of your spouse worshiping the ground you walk on, right? I mean, that sounds like a nice thing. It sounds like adoration. It sounds like puppy dog eyes. It sounds like kind of this, you know, just ideal, making your kids a little uncomfortable because you're always so touchy-feely. It, you know, it's like, it sounds like you're just that couple. Or maybe you think worshiping your kids, it's not that bad. It's just doing all you can to make them smile. It's just trying to help them excel. It's trying to make their hearts happy. But when we worship someone else, it's not fun and giggles. It's, it's suffocating. We are not made to bear the weight of other people's worship. And when we place that weight on our spouse, when we place that weight on our child, we are setting them up to fail. It's unrealistic pressure. We, no one wants to be in a position where you are solely responsible for someone else's happiness and well-being, right? And, and I know, like, there's, this is, so, disclaimer here. A disclaimer, I don't know if that's even the right thing, but I, we're going to talk about some things this morning, and I know some kids are going to think, I really hope my mom and dad are listening. And I know there's going to be some husbands who think, like, she didn't write that down. She needed to write that down. You know, and, and wives, the same thing. You're going to be like taking pictures to show with him later. Um, so here, here's what I want to ask you to do. Stop it and let God speak to you. Right? Even, even like, I adore my wife. And even as I'm writing through this this week, there are times where it's like, I wonder if I should have Angie read this on Saturday night. Just, you know, to let God speak to her a little bit. Uh, <laughs> But it's a reminder to me of, no, 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 no. It starts here. 
right? It starts here with me. The, even, even that thought that you have in your life right now that if my spouse will just get this, if my kid will just get this, if my parent will just get this, it means you're looking for your satisfaction and your joy outside of Jesus. And so lay that aside and listen to what he wants to say to you. But when we, when we worship someone else, we place this unrealistic pressure on them. And it, it's bad enough for an adult to feel this way, but when a child is made to feel like mom or dad's whole sense of well-being is dependent on them, that is an unbearable weight for a child or a teenager to bear. We always disappoint others when they place us on the throne of their heart. And when we allow someone to have that spot in our life, we're not, we're not elevating them to a privileged position. We're setting them up to fail. And until we withdraw our worship or they reject it, everyone's going to be miserable in that process. So we damage them with unrealistic pressure. We also damage them with unreachable expectations. I mean, I see this, uh, honestly, I see it in myself. I see it in other moms and dads. And one of the places I see it the most, uh, just because it's where our family spends a lot of time, is on the ball field and the basketball court, right? It's the, and I have been so guilty of it at times, of just barking at these little boys because they are making turnovers and they're not playing like five-year NBA veterans, you know, of like, why? And, and I remember, man, I, I remember so many times uh, yelling at, I, so in college, I remember being in college, my college coach, his role models in coaching uh, were Bobby Knight and Bob Huggins. So he loved to scream, red face, stomping, all that kind of stuff. And there's one time we were playing and our point guard turns the ball over in the far corner, the farthest away from our bench. And he screams at him, Chris Johnson! And the gym goes silent. Why did you do that? And he's just like, I don't know, coach. And the whole gym just erupted in laughter, and it was that moment. And I remember sitting there on the bench in that moment thinking, he is so ridiculous. Why? Like, it's not like Chris did that on purpose. And then about four weeks ago, my son turned the ball over in a playoff game. And I stomped my foot, and I yelled, Carter, why did you do that? And my phone buzzed in my pocket. And I looked at it, and it was my wife, and it said, in all capital letters with about seven exclamation points, you need to calm down. <laughs> and the reason my son did it is because he's 11 years old. And that's what they do when they play basketball, right? And, but these unrealistic expectations, you see it on the ball field, you see it on the basketball court, you see it with parents of little toddlers where they're turning to them. Why do you keep doing that? And you just wish they could have like that Balaam's donkey moment where God just speaks through them and they say, because I'm three and that's what I do. I break stuff, I spill stuff, and I say no, Right? And, and, but we have these unreal, when you worship someone else, you pile these unrealistic expectations on them. And you think, unless they're perfect, my life doesn't have meaning. I need you to perform flawlessly on the court or in the classroom or on the stage because it, when I worship you, your performance validates my worth. And that is just an unbearable way for a child to live. It's an unbearable way for a spouse to live. When someone else's expectations are so high and so unrealistic, and really, when you're telling someone else in your actions and your attitudes, I worship you, all of my life, all of my well-being depends on you, no one ever 
meets that expectation. No one can fill that need. You're getting angry at people for meeting a need that is beyond their ability. You're getting mad at your spouse and your children for not being God. And what are they supposed to do? They have no hope of satisfying your soul. There's no way they can do it. As Christians, I think we even have our own little unique way of doing this. I've heard a, a lot of parents of young children especially talk about, you know, we're, we're so excited to welcome our little world changer. You know, we just, we know, and, and listen, I get it. I get you want to say positive things over your children. I think you, you know, we all want to believe that our kids will go farther and faster than we did. They'll, they'll do more significant things. We want them to invest in God's kingdom. But my goodness, there was one perfect child, and it's not yours, right? So just relax a little bit. They don't have to memorize the whole Bible by the time they're 10. They're going to sin. They're going to mess up, and God is going to be gracious towards them so we should be as well. If he wants them to be the next Billy Graham, it's going to be done in spite of you, not because of you. Yeah. Right? There, there's no program that turns out perfect little Christian world changers. The only thing that turns out Christian world changers is the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And until we get that, we'll just keep piling this unrealistic expectation on our children. And one day you'll find your life has not amounted to what you thought it would because you followed the program and you didn't get the end result you expected. These unrealistic expectations will kill us and they'll kill those that we're placing on and they'll lead us to unreasonable disappointment. When Angie and I meet with couples before they get married, one of the things we tell them every single time is, look, in your marriage, your disappointment and your anger are going to be directly related to the distance between your expectations and your experience. And if you go in expecting your spouse to completely fulfill you, to meet every need, to read your mind, to know what you need before you ask, like you're expecting them to be God, right? It's Jesus who said, your father knows what you need before you ask him, not your husband knows what you need before you ask him, right? If he's talking about husbands, he would say, your husband still doesn't know what you need even after you ask him. Like, write it down and draw a picture, and then maybe, maybe, but probably not. But anytime we have these unrealistic expectations, we're putting this unrealistic pressure, it's going to lead us to unreasonable disappointment. It's normal to be disappointed in our relationships with each other, but when we're expecting the other person to complete us, it will lead us to a very deep and dark season of disappointment. And not just in your marriage, but the same is true in parenting as well. If you are counting on your child to affirm you, to thank you, and to appreciate all the sacrifices you made for them, good luck. You didn't do it for your parents. Your parents didn't do it for their parents. No child in the history of the world has ever fully grasped the sacrifices of a parent when they're being raised. Maybe they do later, and they come back and say, sorry, I got it. I get it now. You guys were great. Maybe they do, but maybe they don't. But as long as we're placing our worship on them and them fulfilling those needs for us, it's going to lead us into very, uh, very dark, very deep seasons of unreasonable disappointment. We also damage our family if we, if we go down this path with undeserved criticism. We think the worship of another person would be kind and affectionate, but it's often cold and ugly. 
When you worship another person, it, it normally doesn't look like, man, I, I'm just, I'm bringing flowers every day, I'm buying gifts all the time, I'm positive, I'm affirming, I'm encouraging. But when you worship another person, they constantly disappoint you. And for most of us, when we are constantly disappointed, we become very critical, very hurtful, very angry. We're full of resentment and bitterness. And that begins to just pour out of us. And so the, the, the strange thing that happens is you get a husband or a wife who worship their spouse, who worship their marriage, and they think everything I do in life is coming from a desire for us to have the best marriage possible. But all of the words coming out of their mouth make them sound like a miserable, bitter person. You see it with parents who, no matter what their child does, they lead with criticism. Of no matter, you know, they come home with the 95% on their test, and it's like, well, what happened to the other 5%? They throw a no-hitter, and it's like, if you wouldn't have walked that one, it would have been a perfect game. You know, they, they win the championship, and it's like, well, you weren't the leading scorer. You know, and there's all these little things, and, and we do it in our marriage with each other, and just all of this unfair criticism starts to come out. And a lot of times, what we convince ourselves is, I am just speaking the truth to them. I'm trying to draw out of them the greatness that God has placed in them. But criticism is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes you just got to stop blaming your meanness on the Holy Spirit. When you worship someone else, I mean, this is one of the greatest tests. If you are constantly critical towards your spouse or towards your children, it doesn't just mean that you need the Spirit to sow kindness in you, but it means you need to completely surrender your heart again to the Lord, to allow him to take all of this and for you to fully appreciate your wife, your husband, your children for who they are. They are not gods created to satisfy you. They are gifts from God for you to serve. And we cannot lead with criticism. You should not be the chief critic in your spouse's life or in your children's life. You should be the one pointing them to God's grace, pointing them to God's mercy. Finally, we damage our family with unfair comparison. When you worship your children or you worship your spouse, what you are really worshiping is a, an unrealistic ideal. And when you do that, you, you start to look around you, and you're worshiping this ideal. So you start to look in the world around you to see, well, who's actually achieving it? And so you know some of the cracks in your own marriage, or you know some of the cracks in your relationship with your kids or with your mom and dad, and you start to look at the world around you, and you think, well, well their marriage looks better than mine. Well, that guy at work is a lot nicer than my husband is. Well, that lady affirms me in ways my wife never does. And what we start to do is we start to compare our worst moments to other people's best moments. And you start to look around and think, well, look at them. They're smiling and holding hands. He puts his arm around her in church. He does all these things. She does all these things. And, and it just becomes more and more proof to us that we got ripped off. Maybe we did get married too young. Maybe we shouldn't have entered into this. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe my dad was right and, and this guy is a loser. You know, and, and we go down all these roads and what's really, really sad to see 
is how many marriages end because of unfair comparison. Because of the, the, they believe the lie that the grass is greener on the other side. You know, and, I, and I love that. I don't remember who told me at one point, but it was like sometimes when you look and the grass is greener, it's because the yard's full of crap. Right? And, and I don't know, it just it helped me understand it in a new way of like, it, yeah, it looks good, but you get over there and suddenly it's like, oh, now you got to look at the next yard, and then you got to look at the next yard. And then as long as you're finding your satisfaction in your marriage by comparing it to someone else, you're always going to find something else that looks better. And the same is true for your spouse. Because when you live together, all those appearances and all the grace that you have in public, it gets stripped away, and you see the real person eventually. And when you're worshiping God, he gives you grace to deal with the real person. And when you're worshiping your spouse, it pushes you away from them. And you start to worship this, this, this ideal that's out there. At the end of his chapter on worshiping family, Kyle Eidelman gives us this warning. He says, what if our loved ones somehow lived up to our high hopes? What if the daughter aced math? What if the wife did all the things her husband was demanding? Would anything really be different? No, because the whole exercise began with a false premise. If only X will happen for me, then I will be satisfied. It's the thought that we can never quite conquer, the thought at the very heart of idolatry. If the daughter aced math, the parents would realize they still weren't satisfied, so they'd look until they found some other imperfection to work on or goal to accomplish. Once X happens, it is replaced by Y. I mean, and that's, that's really... The, the core of what we're talking about. That's what Jesus is telling us in, in Luke 14 of he has to be first because he's the only one that satisfies. Everything else has to fall in under your relationship with him because it's the only way those relationships can survive and can thrive. They cannot bear the weight of your worship. And so we put Jesus first, not because we despise our family, but we put Jesus first because we love our family. We put Jesus first because we know it's only as I am a fully devoted follower of Christ that I can be the husband God is calling me to be. It's only as I put Jesus first that I can be the the father my children need me to be. I will not be the perfect answer to all of their needs. And so one of the greatest opportunities I have as a dad is to introduce them to God's grace and mercy that will make up for all of my shortcomings and mistakes in their life. And so we put him first. What Jesus is telling us is, look, you will love others best when you put me first. It will lead to real relationships. It will lead to authentic relationships. It will lead to you finding your identity, finding your fulfillment, finding your peace and your hope and your joy in Jesus. Palm Sunday, I think, is a a wonderful time for us to consider it because the cry of Palm Sunday is God save us. Here comes the Messiah, God's anointed one. God save us. And the Jews who cried out on that day, they were crying out for salvation from Rome. They were crying out for a restoration of their government. They were crying out for a move from the bottom back to the top. 
But the deeper cry of Palm Sunday goes far beyond a cry for a restoration of a nation or a government. And it goes to a cry to a restoration of creation. It's a cry for Jesus to save us from the ravages of sin in our world. It's a cry for Jesus to come and not only restore our relationship with God, but to restore our relationship with each other. And so if you want your home to be set free from this just unending pressure, from unrealistic uh, expectations, from criticism, and all these types of things, the solution is not to read a book or to resolve to be a better person. The solution is to cry out today, Hosanna, God save me. Regardless of what my spouse does, regardless of what my children do, regardless of the expectations of other people, God save me. Bring restoration here. And what we find is that as we put Jesus first, everything else will fall into place. It won't make everything perfect, but it will help you to begin to understand and to appreciate even the beauty of that imperfection. That the rough edges in our marriage no longer have to be a continual source of tension, but they can be a space for us to experience God's grace. That the failures of our children no longer have to be a weight that we carry as proof that we weren't good enough. But they can just be another reminder to us of God's heart for our children. That as much as we hurt, he hurts more. That as much as we long for them to return, he longs for that more. And as much as we're involved in trying to bring them back in, his spirit is more involved in circling around them and drawing them back to himself. When we lay down that desire to either worship our family or to place ourselves as the God in our family, it sets us free to experience the fullness of life that Jesus intends in these relationships. And it can really be a beautiful experience because even in the mess, we can experience love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control because his spirit works through us when we place our worship on him. And he will hold up under that weight. And so my encouragement to you this morning, I know there, there are many of us that are hurting because of family relationships, either a, a marriage that has ended, a marriage that is struggling, children that uh, have abandoned their walk with the Lord, brothers and sisters who are making poor choices, moms or dads who have turned their back on the faith they imparted to us. And my hope for you this morning is that that cry of Palm Sunday will resonate in your heart. God, save us. And as we cry it out, may we be like those people on the side of the road that day, that as we cry out, God, save us, we see Jesus entering into the picture. And he comes as the Messiah. He comes as the Savior. He comes as the King. He comes as the one who will restore all things. And his invitation to you and me in our seasons of loss and our seasons of hurt is the same as it is in our seasons of plenty. It's surrender everything, follow me, and you will find life and life to the full. We stand with me. I want to pray with you before we leave today. God, we come to you this morning and you see our hearts. You see the areas that we're tempted to Worship something other than you. Lord, you see the continual temptations we face to 
worship our spouse or our marriage or some ideal of what a romantic relationship should be. You see the tendency that parents have to worship their children and find their identity in them. Lord, you see some of us, the the deep hurts we have in our hearts from unmet expectations, from very real disappointment from the actions of those that we love. I pray today, Lord, that your spirit would come, that as we surrender to you, you would fill our hearts with grace. Your spirit would remind us of your truth that when we put you first, you are with us through every one of those moments. Lord, I pray especially for relationships that are hurting this morning. I pray for those that are suffering. I pray for those that seem dead. And I ask, Lord, that you would bring life. May your spirit come. May you be the Savior. May you come in your resurrection power and breathe life into dead marriages. Breathe life into broken relationships between mothers and daughters and fathers and sons. Breathe life, Lord, into every area where sin has ravaged our lives and our relationships. And as we put you first, may you help us to love others more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today. If you'd like someone to pray with you about a specific need in your life, on your way out, take a left and head into the prayer room. Pastor Greg, Pastor Rennie will be there with some others. But may you go in God's grace. May you go in his peace. We hope to see you on Good Friday and again on Easter Sunday. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.